Hello and welcome back to Music Works, a podcast by Polyphony Arts. In this special episode, we are really excited to welcome Aubrey Bergauer, hailed as the Steve Jobs of classical music. Aubrey is known for her impressive work with numerous arts organisations and beyond, transforming scarcity to opportunity in a pursuit of changing the narrative of the performing arts. Today, we will discuss with Aubrey ways of creating a better way forward for the music industry. Listen on to find out her tips and recommendations, such as what constitutes the elements of success for orchestras. Uh, But before we start the conversation, here is an advert from our sponsor. Music Works is sponsored by the Musicians' Union. I'm a member of the Musicians' Union. It's the trade union for musicians living and or working in the UK. And it's a community of 32,000 members working to protect musicians' rights and campaigning for a fairer industry. As well as campaigning to fix streaming and keep musicians working in the EU post-Brexit, the union collectively bargains for musicians working in orchestras and theatres and sets minimum recommended rates for freelance musicians working in other sectors. Its expert staff provide contract advice, legal advice and assistance, and a range of benefits and services to help musicians in every aspect of their work. Be part of something bigger and get the recognition you deserve. Join now at the mu.org. Welcome, Aubrey, and thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Katie. Thanks for having me. Such a pleasure to have you, and the things we're going to talk about are very close to our hearts here at Polyphony as well, so um, very excited to have this conversation with you. First of all, uh, would you be able to give us a bit of a, a, a rundown of your career and what it is you're working on at the moment? Sure. My whole career has been in arts management. Um, I was in high school when I realized this was a profession, and... I'd played an instrument, but I was realizing, oh my gosh, there are all these offstage roles and managing an orchestra just became a big goal of mine. So the whole career has been doing that. And I cut my teeth in Seattle at the leading institutions there. I worked at the Seattle Symphony in fundraising, at the Seattle Opera in marketing. And at both of those organizations, I started seeing very early on, you know, in my early 20s at that point, early to mid 20s, um, the challenges of the industry and how that was playing out and uh, just really started trying to kind of challenge, like, why do we do it this way? And within whatever my scope and role would allow at those organizations would, would try to start doing some things differently and had success doing that. So the rest of the bio is I went on to the Bumbershoot Music and Arts Festival as the number two there, hired in first as marketing director and then promoted um, to oversee all revenue, both earned and contributed. And then most people know me from my work at the California Symphony, which is where I went in 2014 as executive director, was there for five years and really from the chief executive role was able to put all of the changes together that I wanted to make. And over those five years, the proof is in the pudding. We doubled the audience, nearly quadrupled the donor base and I had started blogging about it along the way, and that's when I really, we we together really started getting the attention and visibility of, oh my gosh, maybe there is a different way forward that um, really does drive audience growth or revenue growth and donor expansion and community relevance. So the end of the bio points here are that the last almost four years now, I have been working independently to take all this knowledge and experience I gained and share it with others in a broader capacity. So that's what I've been doing. And here we are now at a really important inflection point in our industry, I think. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there is so much in the work that you do um, that I, we we met around the um, ABO conference in Leeds recently in um, early 2023. And, um, you know, you gave a really inspiring and interesting talk there about the many ways and the many components of a successful orchestra model, which I'm sure you'll agree is um, also transferable to other music organisations and, and other, um, you know, mm-hmm. creative organisations of certain size and so on. Um, however, I want to kick off by asking you about something you said on LinkedIn recently. Um, you said that we need to invest in our offstage talent as much as in our onstage talent music to my ears obviously um can you tell us a bit about your thinking there <laughs> i think our offstage talent needs to match our onstage talent and what do i mean by that well there are some reasons why i think this sort of difference in paradigm exists to begin with so to kind of walk it back um the first is the training so i mentioned it was high school for me when i realized there were offstage roles but that's not normal i've come to learn most people do not find their careers in arts administration until much later uh, in life definitely not in high school so training is one of those reasons we have as probably everybody listening to this podcast knows the training for our musicians is so rigorous so intense so methodical And that's one reason why our artistic talent is so exceptionally high. We know that our artists are so incredible. And so I say our offstage talent needs to match that. We need exceptionally talented administrators in all roles. And so the difference in training is a big reason why that is. Another big reason is You'll have to tell me, Katie, if this is true in the UK or not. But here in the US, another big reason, I believe, is our institutional funders, our grantors. So a lot of times when we're writing a grant or requesting funding, a lot of times our artistic initiatives are considered worthy of that funding, but our quote unquote overhead, meaning offstage roles supporting that onstage effort is somehow not fundable. And this paradigm is so it's one of in my opinion one of the most broken things in philanthropy we need both we need onstage roles we need offstage roles one needs the other one begets the other one does not exist without the other and so when granting organizations say that's not worthy of funding that's part of what's contributing to the lack of talent we have in the offstage roles because we can't fund it okay so this framework that our grantors and funders are laying out is in my opinion part of the reason that's driving this sort of mindset that our offstage talent isn't worth investing in. So all of that combined, I would say, is really contributing sort of toward a scarcity mindset. That's a a big generalization for the field that I think that is the crux of so much of what we need to overcome, but can overcome. Mm. I think so. Like, I, you know, we, uh, we hear a lot, don't we? Um, you know, things like there are no mon- there's no money in the arts, and um, that you hear that on both sides of the performer non performer spectrum uh, across the the work that we do. I'm curious, actually, about um, there's something for me about the way. Um, so what you say is that we need our offstage talent to match our onstage talent. We need to invest in them in terms of money. We need to invest in them in terms of training. We need to make it understood that these roles exist a lot earlier. And then the the whole ecosystem supports itself. 
Um, how in in your experience is there is this system all right from the on stage talent point of view, or is there work to do on both sides? Definitely work on both sides, <laughs> I would say. So you know, I was talking about this very topic with a conductor the other day, and we were saying, you know, even the way we use the word talent in this business, and that's not classical music, that's theater, that's other performing arts organizations. So, um, you know, the talent has arrived. The star soloist is often what we mean, or, or maybe the conductor or something like that, the talent. And we don't always talk like that, but, you know, those that kind of language, even if inadvertently, means everybody else is not the talent. And that's not true. Everybody, you've heard me, you've heard me refer already to our onstage people, our offstage people. We are all talent. It's, it's mm. so like that right there, I think is a pretty interesting point, but I think we do need to nurture both. So how do we do that? You, you know, you're, you asked specifically about our onstage talent, our artists. So, you know, I think of things like and this is true for both, actually, there is research around praise is so much more effective than criticism. And that can be applied, whether it's this, whether it's, you know, us with our teacher in practice room growing up, you know, or if it's conductor to orchestra, that's not to say that we don't need constructive criticism. That's not, it's not saying don't criticize. It's not saying we don't need to work on our weaknesses, whether that's a passage in a piece or something in our offstage work at our desk. So it's not to say we don't focus on how to improve. It's to say that this research of praise being more effective than criticism is so profound. And in fact, the research from all of the different studies done say that praise is in fact up to 30 times more effective than criticism. And so that I think can be applied to, to almost any job anywhere, definitely yeah. any job in classical music. So just that right there, I think is so huge and a really different sort of, I mean, I'm painting with a very broad brush, but generally speaking, very different than the culture we're kind of used to within our organizations. So there's that. And then another big body of research is around psychological safety in the workplace. And I think that also definitely applies so much to our onstage talent as well as our office talent. So, uh, you know, how do we feel like it's okay to speak up? There's a real power dynamic in orchestras that can make you afraid to speak up if you're a player. And how do we foster an environment that says, no, it is okay to ask a question. It is okay to not know the answer. It's okay to make a mistake. I would say that's what rehearsals are for. We work it out. We know we want our final deliverable, meaning the concert, the performance, to be as high quality as possible. But in rehearsal, it's okay. We work it out. You know, they, these kind of things, there are nuance to them, but to feel safe to do that is, wow, that would be, I think, revolutionary for our institutions. Yeah, I agree. There's such a, wherever there's imbalance of power, there's safety issues, right? And uh, I am sure you've experienced this as well, but the number of people that I have worked with who do not feel safe in a work environment and very often those people are to use the phrase you used before the talent that arrives and is you know who you would think would be the person who was exempt from this but actually every single person involved 
is subject to feeling as though they can't make a mistake and can't mess up. Um, and that must be incredibly critical to our the future of our organization. Yeah, I think, you know, there's an, another body of research is coming to mind, another research study. And the number one reason people leave organizations is not because of pay. We, we have all conversations about that sort of, but we're talking about investing in talent, but that's not the number one reason people leave. The number one reason is not, you know, lack of benefits or something like that. It's their manager. And so when we combine these topics of establishing a place of psychological safety, um, praise being more effective than criticism, so much of that is dependent on who our manager is, our direct manager. So if you're on stage, that's your principal, that's your conductor. It's if you're, let's see, if you're off stage, it's your direct supervisor, it's your CEO. If you're a CEO, it's your board chair and the rest of your board, right? So we all report to somebody is what I'm trying to say. And the idea that people leave, people don't leave organizations, people leave people is another way to say that. Yeah. And it's definitely harder when you're a player to say, I just leave. We know there's a whole, you know, you got to land a job somewhere else usually. And that's a whole process in itself, of course, of course. But I'm just so struck by the fact that you know, we could talk about the dollars and cents of running an orchestra all day long, and I have plenty to say on that. But more and more, this topic of people, I'm realizing is so much, I think, the crux. Like, if we get the people part figured out, the culture, organizational culture part figured out, the revenue is going to follow. Mm. If we invest in our offstage talent and get incredible offstage roles, generating that money we need. And I don't just mean in marketing and development roles. There's all kinds of ways, all departments, all roles are contributing to making more money. If we get that part figured out, the culture piece, the safety piece, the we praise more than we criticize piece, all of that, we are going to make the money we need to then invest in paying our artists more, the infrastructure we need to do more on stage, all of that. So it's a real shift from how we tend to prioritize things in the current model i think so i think there's a um a distinction drawn whether kind of deliberately or accidentally between the financials and the kind of business model and then the the perceived softer side which is looking after people the culture and i think like diversity and inclusivity comes into that side of things as well um, there's a lack, in my opinion, of understanding the impact that one has on the other. Um, there's a, you know, there are statistics about that, for example, the cost of turnover of, of every time you lose someone from a senior role in particular, the cost of the organization is it, it can be 18 months worth of 18 months worth of that person's salary to, to recruit someone at a high level. It can be, um, it can be six to 12 months for someone who's a member of the wider team. So, you know, um, those costs are rarely, I think, considered, especially in um, in an organisation such as an orchestra where there's just so much cash scarcity all the time. It's really hard for people to have that level of oversight. I don't know what else to say in response to that. I think yeah. you're nailing it. I think, I mean, it really goes back to this idea of scarcity mindset and how do we overcome that? Mm. So is there, so in your experience of working with this then, um, what are the traps that orchestras fall into um, with, with, their, with their, with their organizational structure, perhaps with the way they approach this? Great question. I think 
we are so siloed as institutions. So what do I mean by that? We know there is an us versus them mentality. That's one version of silo. We've offstage, onstage, uh, musicians, management, us versus them. There's that, but that's just one. So we've already said the talent, you know, who's special versus who's not. That's another way we silo. And another way to say that is um, deprioritize groups of people. So that's a version of a silo. Suppression is another way to say that. Another version of silos in our institutions, definitely true here in the States because the funding model is a bit different, but the marketing versus development people, I don't know exactly how this plays out there, but I've been in so many organizations, including the ones I cut my teeth at. I said in Seattle Symphony, I was in fundraising at Seattle Opera, I was in marketing. And in both of those places, it was who owns those patron names? Like, does fundraising own those people? Does marketing own those people? First of all, nobody owns anybody. So that's a bit problematic. But second of all, it's not which department is responsible for those people. It's no, we all, all of us, no matter our department, no matter our role, are here to serve the customer. That's a big mind shift from we're here to serve the art. I'm not saying don't serve the art. Please, everybody, don't come at me because you think I said don't serve the art. That's not what I'm saying. So I'm saying that we, like, if we don't have an audience, we don't exist. So we are here to serve our customer. And we do that through producing fantastic art. So, okay, there's that. And I just, to bring all this to a finer point, you know, it's not these departments versus those departments, the revenue versus the artistic, you know, all the different silos I've mentioned. It's we are all on the same team. And if we're all on the same team, serving an audience, serving a community, that really starts to at least align us better. And then we can start talking about the organizational structural changes that really help us better deliver that Absolutely. service. And so what um, can you tell us from your experience about the impact of changing this then? Is there somewhere that you've worked where this has been done differently? I... If I'm being fully honest, I don't think I've worked at an institution that totally solved it. <laughs> I, I will say we, at the California Symphony, I think we made a lot of great strides here. And I could see from that how as more musicians came on board, as it came on board, meaning like, okay, I see it. We're here for the audience. Yeah. And that does not mean we sacrifice the art we produce to make that statement or make that, not even just a statement, make that you know, what we care about and, and our actions uh, reflect on that. So that was really gratifying. And to see more and more players say, you know, I get it. I love playing to a full house more than I love playing to a half empty house, right? That's not rocket science. Any artist would probably agree with that statement. And so it, when it becomes internalized, like, wow, I see the difference in the energy in the hall when there are people everywhere here to see what we do. Like, that actually makes me want to make my art better. Like when I start seeing artists make that mind shift, I'm like, yes, you got it. So like I said, I don't think we solved it. Not every player felt that way for sure, but we I could definitely see all of us over the five years I was there. Because when I came, it was like, a, not every other orchestra, but many others, financial crisis. How are we gonna make payroll? My first year we had a union contract negotiation and that was tough because the trust wasn't established yet. That psychological safety wasn't fully established yet. Mm. You know, it's all the same things that we're all dealing with everywhere else. And 
I, I compare that to three years later, we had the next union contract negotiation and it was so different in terms of not so like I said, not solved everything. We're still talking about how do we pay you more and all the things that we all care about. But I don't know, the vibe was different. The collaboration felt different because there was trust. There was this idea of, wow, we've grown our audience a lot. And now that allowed me to come to the table saying we get to talk about different raises than we definitely talked about three years ago. So mm. that's what I mean. The dollars and cents really follows in many ways this uh, all this other stuff we're talking about here mm, interesting um yeah I mean it's fascinating to hear and I think this, this conversation has been so good in terms of like pinpointing those things that are important about um working with what people humans need to have a good and fulfilling career whether it's on stage off stage you know I just I'm so I'm such a big believer overall of the fact that if people are happy and looked after, then good things happen. <laughs> Agree. Yeah. Um, tell us about what you're working on specifically at the moment then. Well, right now I've got two different things going on that anybody interested in this conversation, I invite you to explore and become a part of. Mm. One is for organizations, one is for individuals. So I'll mention both of them for organizations. I've just rolled out what's called the Run It Like a Business Academy. So if you're hearing all of this and thinking, Aubrey, but how? How do we do this? Uh, this academy is for that. So it's an online video on demand training course. So this is, again, for teams, for organizations. It can be marketing teams. It can be organization-wide, whatever feels helpful and appropriate to the size of your organization. And we really talk about these strategies and how do we become customer centric in our marketing, for example, and how do we use that then to grow our audiences? So the run it like a business Academy, it also comes with open office hours with me at different times of the day to work across time zones. So well aware that, uh, across the pond means sometimes I'm getting up pretty early and that's okay. So, uh, Anyways, run it like a business academy. Check it out if that feels of interest to you. And then for individuals, if you're hearing all this thinking, wow, I just want to have more conversations like this. I want to be surrounded by people in my network who also think this way. Then the Changing the Narrative community is for you. So the community I started just a couple months ago, it's still pretty new. And we have people from multiple countries, different parts of the world saying, yeah, this is what I care about and want to talk about, artists, administrators. So we do networking events. We do professional development events, really just trying to continue to advance ourselves and the field while also being connected with like-minded colleagues. So the Changing the Narrative community, the Run It Like a Business Academy, those are the top two things I'm working on right now. Fabulous. That's great to hear. Is the uh, community from artists as well as Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. And, yeah. Because anybody following this conversation, you know, I've said it takes all of us and we're all on the yeah. same team. So it's actually one of my favorite parts of the community that we have on stage and off stage roles, a part of it. Mm, fantastic. Oh, that sounds brilliant. I love things that get those two um, sets of people talking to each other because actually that the, it's, it's just not that common, is it? Relatively, you know, you just I know the experience of in rehearsals and concerts as against in an office is just so different. But actually, you know, we're all very much in it together. Agreed. Yeah. Mm, 
Oh, lovely. Well, it's been fantastic to hear about this and I know that there's a huge amount more to say. Um, but I think that we have had a, a neat conversation about the people in the industry and so I shall curb my enthusiasm to go on and talk about <laughs> any of the other areas which I know you're an expert in. Um, just one final question. If you had the sort of one message for the orchestral sector, for people listening, um, what would it be? I believe, and you heard me say this at ABO, Katie, but I believe we have the foundational assets to run a thriving business, meaning we have a fantastic product. We've worked hundreds of years to create a fantastic product, and we have that in our pocket. And so many businesses across so many sectors want what we have, which is a very strong product. Okay, that's thing number one. The other foundational asset we have is... Collectively, we have tremendous economic impact. We didn't really get to talk about that today, but the short of it is there are orchestras in every region, true in the US, true in the UK, serving almost every community out there. Not, I can't say every, but we have such a far-reaching impact and collective economic impact. That is power we can claim, a strength we have. So those two things together are what keep me going because it gives me hope like I said, they're foundational assets to any thriving business. So I really believe that change can happen and that we have the tools at our disposal to make it happen. Brilliant. That's great to hear. I believe that too. It's good to remember. <laughs> Thank you so much, Aubrey. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Katie. The pleasure is mine.